Well, good evening. We are getting into this relatively new series tonight in biblical leadership here in lesson four. And as we get started, we've got plenty to cover tonight. want us to just begin with a, a quick, the quick version of where we've been so far, what we've learned so far in this new series on biblical leadership, primarily aimed at leadership in the church. We started with the lesson, if you recall, on the importance of leadership. Leaders make and break a group, an organization, a local church. Why? Not because they're more important, but they are steering the ship for better or for worse. And so accordingly, we did a lesson on the mission of biblical leadership. What's the mission of the church? It is to make disciples, to see people saved and sanctified, to present every person complete in Christ. This is lifelong work. It's hard work. God has given us grace and power through his Holy Spirit, though. There's a real problem, however, when leaders of the church miss or change the mission of the church. Oftentimes, a new mission emerges or focus, such as making money, building buildings, securing attendees, or keeping people happy, entertaining the crowd, building self-esteem. None of these reflect the true mission of the church, and they only result in churches filled with unsaved or unsanctified people. You have to get the mission right. And so we spent a lesson doing that. And that also led us to a third lesson on last week, the power of biblical leadership and the work that God has given us to do to make disciples and all that contains. Is that a natural work or supernatural work? Supernatural. Marlene, why is it supernatural? What, what makes that work Supernatural. And when the Spirit brings people to Christ, what, what's he doing? That's supernatural. Yeah, making them alive. That, it's just like, by definition, we don't have the power to do that. We can't make the spiritually dead alive anymore, the physically dead alive. And so the, the work we have is supernatural because it involves changing hearts. For salvation, people need a, a brand new spiritual heart. We can't give them that. And even for sanctification, people need a heart that is continually renewed into the image of Christ. We also can't do that for them. Salvation and sanctification are works of God through the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean we're passive. God has given us work to do. Our mission is to make disciples, to present every person complete in Christ. And we do this by ministering the gospel which is the power of God for salvation. And we learned last time, it's also the power of God for sanctification. That's where God has placed his power, so we must simply be faithful to unleash it in the lives of others, trusting God to work in their lives as he sees fit. So this is why we spent so much time last week on the power of biblical leadership, which is the gospel. And unfortunately, again, when leaders in the church, when they miss the true mission of the church, they also quickly forsake the true power of the church and the power of leadership. When the mission is no longer the supernatural work of salvation and sanctification and presenting every person complete in Christ, but it becomes this natural work of filling pews, building buildings, being entertaining, making money. Well, the, the gospel is quickly put on the shelf for some tool, some other tool that's more effective at doing that. And to this, all we can say is, well, may that never be the case for us, for our church, for our leaders. So that's what we've covered so far. These are all foundational matters. That's on purpose. We are trying to lay first the foundation of biblical leadership. Before we get to all of the particulars and practicals, you must first understand what it means to be a leader in the church, what it takes, what it's all about. And today we're going to carry that on by having a lesson on the tools of biblical leadership. The fourth lesson now on the tools of biblical leadership. Again, this is supernatural work. And the power for that is the gospel, as we've learned. That's how God changes lives and hearts. But where do we learn about the gospel that we might wield it? In scripture, I know it's one of those questions that's so easy, it's kind of pointless to answer, right? And where do we go to find the mind and will of God for all things? Thank, yeah, okay. And how much of Scripture is inspired and profitable for training in righteousness? All of it. Oh, wow, very good, guys. Wow. You guys are, wow, that was a first, yeah. 
you guys coordinate beforehand to do something like that? I don't know. Yeah. And then furthermore, how do we see that word of God really bring conviction in someone's life and change them? I'll give you this answer. It's prayer. And to really bring it to bear in their lives, we need to call God's power to do that. It's still supernatural work we're talking about here, and so we need the word and prayer. And so we find then, practically speaking, there are simply two tools of biblical leadership. It's the word of God and prayer. And I know that's, that's nothing new. That's not earth shattering to you guys. But at the same time, don't let this fall on deaf ears because you've heard it so much. You know, the word and prayer, the word and prayer. Okay, we get it. But do you get it? And do you really appreciate these tools that God has given us to fulfill the church's mission? And I want to help you with that tonight. That we want to be a church that raises up leaders who don't take the word of God and prayer for granted and really understand their value, their role, their essential nature in their own lives and certainly in leadership. We need leaders who know their tools, believe in their tools, and wield their tools rightly. So to get started, though, in this regard, maybe we'll begin with a little example or case study showing you why church leaders need to know and wield and appreciate these two tools. And picture a couple starting to attend the church. They've become pretty regular. They're, they're kind of in. And you spend some time with the husband. You get to know him. And you learn over time that he has a, a serious anger problem, mostly at his family, directed in, in the home. We're not talking crisis level or anything, but it's, it's affecting their, their marriage, his kids. He wants to overcome, but he, he feels totally clueless and helpless, doesn't know what to do. So what would you do? Well, the first instinct of most Christians would be to say, you better go talk to the pastor about that. And look, oftentimes that is the appropriate response, especially when you're dealing with someone who's already in the advanced stages of sin. Maybe they're in crisis mode, then yeah, you, you bump them up, to the, the, up the chain. But I would say, why don't, why don't you help that person? Why don't you be his counselor or discipler? Isn't that what we're talking about here with all this leadership training? Our goal is not just to make a bunch of preachers and teachers out of you, although, hey, that's great if if that's your calling, but we're trying to foster a a shepherding mindset in the people of the church. So why don't you play a part in helping to, to shepherd this man? Still, most feel too inadequate. They might respond like, you know, I don't know what to say to this guy. I don't know how to help him. What, what am I supposed to do? Where do I even begin? I understand that reaction among people. You feel as if acting as this guy's you know, counselor or discipler is maybe out of your league. You just don't know what to say. I know this is kind of a ludicrous example, but what if you were asked to perform open heart surgery on a patient? You would obviously like say, no, I don't think so. You have no idea how to do that. You fear you would do more harm than good. You, you would back away. You sense the weight of the task. I mean, this is life and death. I'm not going to play around with this. It's just it's crazy. You don't know the first thing about it. You're not trained. You're not equipped. And spiritually, I think this is how most people feel when it comes to discipleship. Helping those struggling in sin at church. It's like spiritual open-heart surgery And you feel like, you just don't know the first thing about it. You wouldn't even know where to begin. What on earth would you say to help that person with his anger problem? You you don't know. And most are just so intimidated by the task. They sense the weight of it. Like, okay, this is someone's life we're playing with and and even eternal matters. That's appropriate. They don't want to mess it up, but they just don't know what to say. They're ill-equipped. And so they just, they back away. And so again, it goes back to, why don't you just go see the pastor? And that becomes the refrain of the church. You know, go see the pastor. Go see the pastor. Go see the pastor. And again, there's a time and a place for that. Absolutely, if we know that. But it would be a sad thing for a church to only rely on its paid pastors to do this work of discipleship. We learned that several lessons ago. Wouldn't it be better if a whole host of people were trained and equipped and mature enough to, to help to bear the burdens of the body together? So, look, serious cases, they're going to get passed up the chain to those with maybe more training and experience and equipping and gifting. That's fine. But there's a reason surgeons have a team of nurses. It's to just help share the load. 
And likewise, the church needs a team of people working together to bear the burdens of others, whether you're a doctor or a nurse or however you might fit in at whatever level. I would exhort you not to pull away or shrink back from the prospect of helping others like this. You see that, that guy struggling with an anger problem. You don't just have to pass him up the chain. Maybe you meet with him. You disciple him. You counsel him, at least at first. And if you don't know what to say or do, well, how about you get trained? How about you get equipped? How about you go to spiritual medical school? Which, by the way, isn't that what we're pretty much doing here on Sunday nights and leadership training? That, that's what this is. Okay, so now I'll take this illustration a little bit further. Let's say you decide to meet with this guy and you're going to try and disciple him or help him. He's wrestling with serious outbursts of anger. He wants to stop. He's a professing believer. He just doesn't know how. So now, what would you say? How would you help him? And first, let me ask you, what type of counsel would this man get in the world? What would be secular counsel that would be given to someone to overcome anger? Any? Okay, maybe a 12-step, an anger management, a program. Some, some blame shifting. Yeah, okay, go some medication. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Blame it on your parents. <laughs> yeah. I, I did, it doesn't take long. You'll find a lot of these kind of pop psychology websites. They're all over with their, you know, 12 tips or whatnot. And so these were, that I found, some earnest counsel given to help you beat your anger problem. You know, stop talking, take long, deep breaths, splash some water in your face, avoid getting into stressful situations, just walk away, develop a method for calming down, Practice meditation, stand up and stretch, do 10 jumping jacks, massage the back of your neck while singing happy birthday. I think it's trying to like distract yourself or wear a rubber band on your wrist and, and snap yourself every time you feel angry. And we, we get this, but you know, what's the problem with all this counsel? Yeah, the heart. It's all external. It's all just external. These are merely efforts to try and modify someone's behavior without addressing the source of that behavior, which is the heart. And, and people can be molded and modified by behavior modification. But that's the same as dealing with the weed problem using a lawnmower. You can cut them off, look good for a little while, but they're going to grow right back, maybe even another place, but you haven't dealt with any of the weeds. If you don't address the source of a person's sins, if they don't change from within, they're not actually changing. And there might be some practical wisdom in some things, some, some ways to live out, but you have to understand the heart of the problem and the heart solution as well. And so we know that real growth and change takes place inside out. First, you would need to wield the sword of God's word to draw out the thoughts and intentions of this man's heart. You would need to use scripture to uncover his root problem, according to God. And then you would need to apply the truths of scripture and the gospel to help correct the problem. So we're not going to dive too deeply into this, but to continue this illustration a bit, you know, maybe as you study God's word, you would learn that the sinful response of anger is fundamentally tied to self-worship. People get angry because they're busy building their own kingdom and living for their own glory. And when they don't get their own way, they lash out. It can be as simple as someone driving too slowly in front of you and just makes your blood boil. You can't pass them. They won't move over. Why is that? You know, are you so furious because that person is really offending God and his kingdom? No. You're angry because they're keeping you from getting your own way. They're messing with your little kingdom. This is your kingdom. Everyone else better play by your rules. Otherwise, they will feel your wrath. But you see, such a person is essentially trying to be God. And this can happen even among believers, of course. Such a person in their heart, their flesh. And this is all of our flesh. Our flesh all says, my kingdom come, my will be done. That's the sinful flesh of, of everyone. But for some people, when, when that doesn't happen, anger is the result I know we're just scratching the surface here, but this is the, the, the nature of wisdom you would need from God's word to bring to bear to their problems to understand what's the root of their behavior, not just the, the expression of it. And knowing this, you can then help them with a real solution. 
The solution is humility to put off self-worship through repentance and return to giving all worship and honor and glory to God alone. And thus, there must be a, a real and radical denial of self and this desire to get your own way. You have to, to kill that part of you because this is not your kingdom. We were not saved by Christ that we might build our own kingdom. We were already doing that, and it, that's what wrecks this world. But now we're about his kingdom. So in humility and submission, this person needs to recognize this is God's world. He sets the rules. The only thing that, to, that should really ever anger us is when we see others, and they are truly offending and, and maligning God and his kingdom. And you might get away with a, a righteous indignation. But in general, though, our own kingdom, we used to live for that, but no longer. We were called to die to self in our own ways, our own desires and wishes. And we live now for Christ and his. We, we've died to self in Christ. We're alive in him. And really, the more you align your life and your purpose with him and his will and his kingdom, daily, you're going to find your anger melting away. Again, we're just, we're, we're getting really brief with this, but hopefully you get the picture. It, the idea is that you administer these truths of God's word to the heart of this man who's struggling with anger. And then, then you would pray for him. You would pray that the Holy Spirit would take these truths, bear conviction on his heart, leading to inner renewal and therefore outward behavior change. And that change, when it happens, it will be supernatural. When that man exhibits self-control in the future and he does not respond in anger, God will get the glory for that, not him, because that fruit came from the Spirit, not him. That's why it's it's called the fruit of the Spirit, like self-control. And that's really the type of growth we are after in all this. So that's all this introduction. Why do I bring this up? Where am I going with this? Simply to show you that if, if we're serious about our mission of making disciples and presenting every man and woman complete in Christ, we've, all, we've studied all of that. If that's, if that's our mission, we're serious about it. We have to understand it. And every, every part of this mission, it's supernatural work we're called to do. It's not natural. It's a supernatural work. Thankfully, God has given us the power and the tools to do this work. And so we must use the power and the tools we've been given. Don't turn to gimmicks or worldly wisdom, though it's easy to do. There's enough of that in churches today. Instead, if you want to see real growth, and if you want to partake in real discipleship, there's just one way. Deliver the power of God to the hearts of people using the gospel and the tools of the word of God and prayer. The gospel is the power of and the word of God and, and prayer are the tools we use to administer that power to the hearts of people that they might change. We're in the spiritual heart surgery business. And this, this is the, the tools we have, the word of God and prayer. So again, know these tools, learn them, appreciate them. Do not take them for granted because the application of every sermon is read your Bible and pray, read your Bible and pray. Well, that that's, what else is going to be? I mean, this is these are the primary tools given for our spiritual growth, our inner change. We can, it can be trite, like, okay, what am I supposed to do? Just you know, read numbers, my problems go away. But you understand that the power, the place, the purpose of the word and prayer, you find how it, how it works, how God uses the word and prayer to change us by the Spirit from within. So let, let's do this now. Let's spend now our time Peering into the, the tools of the word and prayer that we might better know and appreciate and wield them. We'll begin with number one, the tool of the word. The tool of the word. I want to show you why the word of God is an invaluable tool for biblical leadership. What would you say to that? Just kind of first and foremost, why is the Bible an invaluable tool for biblical leadership? It comes to the top of your head. Speaks to us through his word. That, that, that's a great answer because, uh, you know, I suspect most of you might be thinking when we're thinking about biblical leadership, okay, we need the word so that we can help others, that we can, you know, maybe tell them what to do or even just, you know, minister it to their hearts. And that's true, but 
you know, first and foremost, the Bible is an invaluable tool for biblical leaders because it, it feeds us first. It ministers to us first. And you can't lead or feed others if you're not first being led and fed by the Word. The Word is our personal sustenance. So here's a first point. The Word is our, our personal sustenance. This is why it's so essential in leadership. Before you worry about anyone else leading anyone else, just worry about yourself first. You know those airline instruction videos, pre-takeoff, buckle your seatbelt. In case of emergency, the mask drops down, and they've got the video of the, the mom and the daughter. And what's the instruction? Yeah, just take, you put, put your own on first. And at first, you can think, like, that's, that's kind of messed up, right? <laughs> like, why? It's like, save yourself? No, it's not selfish, actually. The, the child is so dependent that if you don't survive, they're not going to survive. So you, you have to take care of yourself first that you might be able to take care of others. Makes perfect sense. And likewise, spiritually, you must feed yourself first before you can feed others. You have to be ministering the word of God to your own heart first before you can minister that word to others. Another perfect picture of this is, is how birds feed their young which is by regurgitation. Like, we're, not, we're not teaching anything new here. We're not making anything up. We're just all regurgitating the word of God. It's already written. It's his word and wisdom. And that's, that's fine. But if a mother bird is starving, her chicks will starve as well. There's nothing to give. If your own well is empty, how can people possibly go to you to draw out living water? You got nothing to give. Matthew 4, 4, you remember when Christ quoted Deuteronomy and said, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Physically, you can get by on bread alone, but if you want spiritual life and life to the fullest, bread's not going to cut it. You need spiritual bread. You need the living bread, the bread of life, the word of Christ, and so forth. 1 Peter 2, verse 2, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. I quote that verse a lot because it so perfectly captures the function of the word in our lives when it comes to our spiritual growth. I mean, it just feeds us like milk to a baby. But before you use this verse for others, use it on yourself. Are you doing that? Are you longing for the pure milk of the word that you may grow in respect to salvation. How about you feed yourself first? Do you have a passion for drinking deeply from this well? And if you don't, do you, do you expect those who follow you to be different? Now, look, I've heard some say, even in leadership positions at times, they might say, you know, I don't really read the Bible that much anymore or have personal devotions anymore. You know, I've read the Bible. I've studied the Bible. I, I know what it says. But such a person is is completely missing the point here. And, and woe to any church if this describes their leaders. As I said last week, we don't read and study and meditate on the Bible simply for head knowledge. If, it, if that's where all it w- was about, head knowledge, yeah, read it, study it, you're, you're good to go. But this is also heart knowledge. This is, although it might be a corny phrase, it's food for the soul. In actually a true sense, it really is our spiritual food for our soul. It's fuel for the Holy Spirit within us, which he promises to use to renew our minds, that we might grow and fight sin and so forth. So it doesn't matter if you've read the Bible a million times, you must draw near at a real devotional level, a worship level, that you might be renewed in mind and in spirit and in worship. And you can't hope to to renew others if, if you're not being renewed. John 15, 4 and 5. Remember where Christ, the vine analogy. He's the vine, we're the branches. He said, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In the verse that follows, he equated abiding, him abiding in us with his words abiding in us. That's, that's functionally how we abide with Christ and he in us. He's given us his spirit. And as we dwell in the word of, of Christ, which is the mind of God, 
He's abiding in us and, and vice versa. And apart from that, we can do nothing. We can bear no fruit. So I just, I hope you trust, or rather I, I hope and trust you get this first point. Why is the Bible such a valuable tool for biblical leadership? Well, first and foremost, it feeds us. It's our daily bread. And for those of you who are in church leadership or who aspire to church leadership, always remember this, that before you're a shepherd, you're a sheep. And before you're a leader, you're just a follower. Before you're a discipler, you're a disciple Lee of Christ Jesus. And you always are. I'm a, I'm a shepherd. I'm still a sheep, though. Before I'm a shepherd, I'm, I'm still a sheep. And so you must tend to your own spiritual life, always. Otherwise, you'll never be effective in leadership. So we see first the, the word as our personal sustenance. A second point to consider, the word as our power to change people. The word as our power to change people. You know, we've, we've really actually already discussed this point. Our mission involves changing people, changing hearts and lives. We've already talked about how leadership in the church is like spiritual heart surgery. And this being the case, just, just connect the dots though, that the word is like our scalpel. If we were to do spiritual heart surgery, the word is our, our tool of the trade, our scalpel. Isn't that kind of evoke the image of Hebrews 4.12? The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit as both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So what the word does, cuts us open, lays us bare, exposes our, our sin, our heart sin, our flesh. But don't fear, the word cuts us not to harm us, but to heal us, that through repentance and the spirit, we can be made whole, made complete in Christ. Also, 2 Timothy 3. In fact, let's, we have time. Let's go ahead and turn there. Turn to 2 Timothy 3. We're reading most of these verses for you for the sake of time, but this is a long passage. 2 Timothy 3. And we'll start at verse 14 when you get there. 2 Timothy 3, 14. I trust these will be familiar enough to most of you. Paul talking to Timothy, leaving behind his, his final will and testament, you could say. He says in verse 14 of chapter 3, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul talks about here and reminds Timothy of his baby food. Literally, this was his spiritual baby food was what? Verse 15. The sacred writings. He grew up on them. They were his spiritual baby food. And what were they good for? What was the function of these sacred writings? End of verse 15. Yeah, they, they're able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation, which is through faith in Christ. And what do these sacred writings consist of? Not your question, just, just humor me. Scripture, how much? All scripture, and then the next verse, you know, that's where he goes into verse 16, the verse you know, all scripture. That's what he's talking about by these sacred writings. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All of these sacred writings are inspired, which is to say they come from God. This is God's word to you. And therefore, all of it is profitable. For what? For teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. That kind of sounds like our mission, right? The mission of the church that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, complete in Christ. It's the same thing. This is our mission. This is the goal of our ministry. So, what do we need? We, we need these scriptures. We need to be devoted to these sacred writings like Timothy. Continue in them. This is what they do. This is what God has given us, his sufficient word for our mission. 
And it's in light of this that Paul so strongly exhorts Timothy to do what with this word? Next chapter, preach it. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. It's the next verse. It says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. You know verse 2. How many times do you skip verse 1? And how serious of a charge is verse 1? Like that, that's pretty serious. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, he's like calling everything to witness here. This is a pretty solemn and serious charge and commission to Timothy. And it, and it comes down to just what? Preach that word. You remember that word you grew up on, your spiritual baby food, that's able to give you wisdom and salvation. And it's, it's everything we need for our mission of making disciples, presenting people complete in Christ, salvation, sanctification, that whole thing. You now need to preach that word, minister that word. Privately, publicly, that word is going to do its work. It's a sharp sword. It's going to reprove and rebuke and exhort people to their benefit, to their spiritual formation. That's a good thing. This is, this is serious work, though. And for it, the word is front and center. It's all the more serious given how quickly people turn away from the word, how prone we are to neglect it. And, there, and then comes verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And you may not be a Timothy, an apostle or a pastor, but Anyone who shares the mantle of shepherd or leader or discipler this is your ministry. Fulfill it. Minister the word. That's, that's your power. It's in the word. It's your tool. You have to use it. Wield it. It's how people will be reproved and rebuked and exhorted and built up and made complete, made sufficient, adequate for every good work. So don't forsake this, this food, this uh, this word of God, these sacred writings. The application now for the biblical leader should be obvious. Get to know your tool. Get to know the word of God. Feed yourself daily and grow in your ability to wield it. And as you grow more and more, get yourself some, some training. Even seek out, if you want to get upper division, seek out the pastors and elders and learn how you can even better accurately handle the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. Like, I really want to know how to swing this axe and really cut straight. Just grow. On a practical level, though, just read the Bible over and over again. Just get to know the Bible. That, that's, that's ground level. I don't know how many guys entered seminary and they had not yet even read the whole Bible. But they're already, they're just, I want to jump straight into seminary, but they hadn't read. It's not like that big of a deal, but you think that'd be like a basic requirement. Like you've at least read the whole Bible and then you can go to seminary. Shouldn't that be like a, maybe a basic requirement? But you would do well just to know the Bible, the books, the storyline, the main subjects, the themes, obviously God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. Understand the concepts of creation, fall, redemption, glory, Get to know the big picture and all the little pictures. The Old Testament and the New Testament. Step it up a notch. Learn some doctrine. Doctrine simply means what the Bible says about any given topic. And that can be so helpful when you're trying to minister to someone about a given topic like anger. And the point is this. Just, just eat it up. If you're just starting out in the Christian life, it can seem intimidating. But don't let that stop you. As the old, you know, I guess saying goes, how do you eat a whale? One bite at a time. You just get started and start eating. Make some daily habits and you will grow. You're only limited by you, your will, your time commitments. Here we could turn this into a whole other series, but just learn for now the absolute essential role 
God's word must play in your personal life and then in your leadership. And for the biblical leader, non-negotiable, right? The, the role of the word in his life and his leadership. So the first tool we have is the word of God. We aim to wield this tool to help people change. But the word by itself is not enough. Reading the Bible or even teaching the Bible is not a magic charm. God's power must accompany it. I can preach a whole sermon and it can fall on deaf ears and result in no change. Why? Well, it's simply up to God the Spirit to apply that word to hearts, to penetrate the heart and to change people from within. And the Spirit moves as he wishes. We can't control that. But at the same time, God has given us another tool to help, and that's prayer. Prayer. Because again, this is supernatural work and you need supernatural power. So you should probably pray. You should probably try praying. And by prayer, it's been said that the sword of the spirit is unsheathed. That the sword, the word of God is unsheathed by prayer. And think about how ineffective you'd be in a battle if your sword was sheathed the whole time. And I'm convinced that more sermons and Bible studies fall on deaf ears, or they don't land with people because they're not bathed in prayer, calling God and beseeching him to to now use the word. His power is in the word, but not to use it to open eyes and, and change hearts. We need God to move people's hearts through the ministry of the word. And so we pray. So let's talk now about number two, the tool of prayer, tool of the word. And then secondly, the tool of prayer. It should be obvious at this point, why prayer is an essential tool for biblical leadership. This is how we access and you could say call down the, the power of God. We don't control God's power, but he's given us his ear. He tells us to pray. He promises to hear. Just take him at his word and pray. In John 15, we read about Jesus. I am the vine, you're the branches. In the next verse, in verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Of course, when his words abide in you, you're going to be asking what, what he wishes. Not my will be done, but your will be done. And you can pray with confidence that, that God will move and work and, and open eyes and change hearts. And if you saw a corpse lying on the road, and I said to you, go raise that person from the dead. What would you do? What could you do? I mean, it's just, it's, it's silly because you know, you have no power to make that happen. I mean, you could give the, the greatest motivational speech ever to that corpse, but just nothing's going to happen. Your only hope would be to pray because God could do it. We have no guarantees, but look, you're, the only way that's happening is if you pray, right? We, we could agree on that. But spiritually, is it really any different? I think we can become misled that you know, we're so wise or smart or convincing or, or good at sharing the gospel that, that we are the ones actually changing people. Maybe you share the gospel with someone and they actually respond and believe. And you think, wow, I, I did it. Well, no, God did it. He used you, but you know, it, was, it was God that did this. But when we miss that, we stop praying. But understand, God must supply the power for salvation and sanctification. You must, therefore, pray. Spurgeon said this, prayer is the master weapon. We should be greatly wise if we used it more and did so with a more specific purpose, end quote. You know, how desperate are you with your prayers for others? I mean that in a good way. Do you, do you plead with God? Well, start pleading. Think back to that guy with the anger problem. You could and you should minister the word of God to his life, bring the word and the gospel to bear on his problems, show him the biblical solution to his problem. But that doesn't mean he's automatically going to accept it and change. God must provide that conviction and that power. So in addition to that, you would then pray for him and plead with God on his behalf that God would now cause that seed to fall in good soil and bear fruit and, and result in change. We need to plead with God for this. So how fervently do you pray for people? If you really believe it's supernatural work, 
We're in the spiritual heart surgery business for salvation and still for sanctification as people are being molded into the image of Christ. How could you not pray? Do you know a fellow believer who is struggling with sin and maybe losing? What are you doing about it? At the very least, are you praying and then praying fervently that God would would work? So get started, especially you leaders. How could you not pray? Also pray the right type of prayers. And don't just pray for people when they're physically sick. But pray, pray for that, but pray more for spiritual sickness. Doesn't that do more damage in people's lives, right? That the sin that, that, that goes on. You go back to last week's lesson, for example, meditate on passages like Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, or Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. You know, from last week, that, that these prayers of Paul for the Ephesians. And just pray like that, these substantial prayers. Not just for travel mercies, although it's not wrong to pray for that, but he's praying deep prayers that, that they'd be filled with the knowledge of the Son of God, that they would know the, the, the uh, unfathomable depth of Christ's love for them, and thereby they would grow. Pray substantial prayers. In fact, you could even just study Scripture itself on prayer and, and learn so much. That, that, again, could be a whole additional series, but just look at how saturated the Bible is with great men and women of the faith who were characterized by prayer. You see all the great saints and leaders in church history and Israel's history, and you'll quickly find they derive their power and their success from God in prayer. I mean, just look no further than Jesus himself, the chief shepherd. Was prayer a priority in the life, in the ministry, in the leadership of Jesus? Obviously, it was a, a massive priority. Luke six twelve, he's faced with the decision of choosing the 12 disciples. So he spends the whole night before praying. Matthew fourteen twenty three, Jesus sent the crowds away so that he could go up the mountain by himself and pray. Just spend some alone time with the Father. There's many verses like that. Luke twenty-two thirty-two, Jesus knows Satan is going to seriously tempt Peter at the cross. So Jesus prays for him that his faith would not fail. And the list just goes on. If there is anyone ever who could get by without prayer, it'd be Jesus, right? The incarnate son of God. He seems like he'd be the one, uh, but he didn't. Prayer was such a dominant feature in his life and his ministry, and it should be the same for us. Prayer is our lifeline to spiritual strength for life, for godliness, for supernatural power in our own lives to fight sin and in the lives of others. And so pray. Now, thinking of Satan tempting Peter, I believe that the enemy of Satan knows how powerful prayer is. So, wouldn't you think that he might direct his attacks and that of demons to believers when it comes to their prayer lives? You know, in war, if you cut off the enemy's supply lines, you're going to win. So would it surprise you to learn that Satan throws every affliction and distraction in the way of our prayers? Doesn't that seem like the greatest battleground spiritually? Because he knows if he can interrupt our prayers, he would be effectively sealing us off from the power of God in, in our lives. And when the disciples fell asleep praying with Jesus in Gethsemane, don't you think that was spiritual warfare? Yeah, it was drowsiness, but I think it was a little more than just drowsiness. There was, a, a, there was the pinnacle of spiritual warfare in the hours before and during the cross for them as well. At the very least, all the more so, just heed Christ's words to them in the garden. Be watching and praying that you not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that's still true. Our, our flesh is still weak. We are waging war, a spiritual war against Satan and the flesh. So don't forsake the tool of prayer, which is powerful enough to tear down strongholds and overcome. And again, all of this applies to all of you, 
but more so to leaders, don't you think? A higher accountability for those with a higher responsibility. Another Spurgeon quote, he said, The minister who does not earnestly pray over his work must surely be a vain and conceited man. He acts as if he thought himself sufficient of himself, and therefore needed not appeal to God. End quote. But in reality, we're not sufficient in and of ourselves to do any of this. Who is sufficient for these things? Paul asked, no one. But God makes us sufficient by his grace and through prayer. And so we must pray. And don't ever buy the lie that you're too busy to pray for yourselves or for others. In reality, you're too busy not to pray. You're too busy not to pray. Meaning prayer is what makes your work swift and effective, spiritual or otherwise. It's, it's what God blesses. You will bless, bless the, the fruit of your hand, the labor of your hand, if you give it to him in prayer. A woodsman was once asked, what would you do if you had just five minutes to chop down a tree? And he answered, I would spend the first two and a half minutes sharpening my axe. And likewise, prayer is what makes all of our efforts work, do actual work, and just seem to work effortlessly. You will not be more fruitful, fruitful if you have more time but less prayer. You're not going to get more done. That's the lie we buy. It's a lie I buy all the time in my flesh. But you, you're not going to be more fruitful if you just have more time and less prayer. It's, it's going to be the opposite. And so, again, pray. Application now, when it comes to this second tool for the biblical leader, well, kind of been saying it the whole time, just pray. <laughs> pray for yourself, pray for others, pray for your enemies, Praise the, pray for those you might be in conflict with. Especially important for leaders to learn, hey, sometimes the sheep can bite and, and even offend you and be difficult. And think of anyone you might have conflict with, or even a leader you might have conflict with or problems with. How about you spend more time praying for that person than grumbling or complaining or gossiping? And you'll see God do the work of mending the relationship. And that's how he maintains unity in the church because you show a real love and care for, for praying for that someone. So how about you pray for yourself, for others, those under you, those above you. Pray all the time. Slip little prayers for yourself and others between all the daily tasks of life. I think that's the heart behind the, the command to pray without ceasing, just to be kind of daily praying and every, every which way, all the time. Pray regularly and spontaneously. You want to set a uh, aside some time for prayer, but never hesitate to just pray on the spot with someone in need. Just make, make them use of that time right then and there. And pray with the church. It's another Spurgeon quote. Could you tell I had a Spurgeon book I've been reading lately? But he said, Neglect of private prayer is the locust which devours the strength of the church. Neglect of private prayer is the locust which devours the strength of the church. And I would add to that, neglect of corporate prayer is a blight too. Speaking of Spurgeon, he would walk people through the Metropolitan Tabernacle, so the church where he ministered. And he always take people down to the basement of the church and he would show them this prayer room where there, there are all those people to be found on their knees interceding for him, the church, the ministry, the gospel. And even during the service and his sermon, there would be people there praying for the word to go out, for God to be glorified, for believers to be edified. And he would tell people, here is the powerhouse of the church. It's like the spiritual furnace of the church that, that keeps it warm. You know, we too have a few prayer meetings at our church. Sunday is 9, Mondays 7.30. We also have a pre-service prayer meeting. We meet every Sunday, 9.30, before the service at 10. Why? Well, we gather simply to pray together for the service, that God would be glorified, that his people would be edified. What sacrifice is required of you to attend the pre-service prayer meeting? Kind of as small as can be. Show up to church 30 minutes early. That's it. Just show up to church about 30 minutes early. What's the benefit? Well, eternal. It's unmeasurable. God always richly blesses 
prayer. So let me just say this. I would have a hard time seeing someone as a leader in this church who doesn't attend something like a pre-service prayer meeting. I don't say that to be a legalist or add requirements or to guilt you into attending. I really don't. Not a guilt trip. But let it convict you. And let it direct you to come because you believe in the power of prayer and you're on board with the mission. And it's not just for pastors and elders. It's for all the people. And these are the types of people who God will naturally raise up. They'll just naturally bubble to the surface and be the leaders of a church in various levels. So let that be you. I feel we could go on forever here with these two tools of biblical leadership, but we'll let that suffice for now. The word, prayer, you know, a tool in our right hand and our left, everything that God has given us, all that we need to do the work that he has left us behind to do in our lives, the lives of others as well. So believe in these tools, know them, cherish them, wield them, don't trade them in. And when you do that, then you become the tool that God uses to see his will done on earth as it is in heaven, all to his glory and our good. So let's be used by God in this manner. Let's pray for tonight. Lord God, we do pray you use us. We, we, we are your humble servants and we want to be used by you for your glory, which is only to our good. Whether we're pastors and leaders or not, to see the value, the immeasurable value of your word and the gift of prayer in our lives. You've you've given us these privileges for a reason, these tools for a reason, that that people might be sanctified and are saved and sanctified, ourselves included. We have the full mind of Christ in Scripture, everything we need for life and godliness, an inexhaustible treasure. How could we neglect it? And furthermore, Lord, we know it's not just for our head, it's for our heart our soul. This is how we overcome sin and have joy in life just through your word. And so feed us. May we be convicted to to feast daily and to feed others. And then to, to let it digest with prayer, to really let it sink in through prayer, that we would call on you and your power to, to help, to help us grow, to, to let it sink in and fall in good soil, and that we would bear fruit. For us, for others, convict us to pray. For, for anyone to be raised up as a leader in this church or, or anywhere, we have to be marked by prayer. It shows our true faith. It expresses that faith. And, and you work. You're a God who hears. And Lord, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to, to pray. Bless our, our time, our evening, this, this series, this message. Just use it in us and to equip us for the work of service in all that we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.